So as um, as as we look on our screens, uh, as we undertake this recap, Romans chapter five says, "Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By the very fact that you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. By whom also we have access." We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So we access the grace of God by faith. We access the grace of God by faith. So we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So we are standing in a place of undeserved privilege, standing in the grace of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 2 in the New Living Translation says, Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. So by faith in Christ, we have been brought into a place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. All right. So it means that we have access. We have admission. We have um, admission to stand in a place of grace. We have entered into a place of undeserved privilege as the children of God. By having faith in Jesus Christ, we have been privileged to enter into a place where we don't even deserve it, but we are standing in a place of undeserved privilege. And the key word there is that we have been admitted, we have access. And we have shared at length uh, on this passage of scripture, reading the preceding verses, and also we also looked at portions of scripture in the book of Ephesians, I believe chapter two, that also talk about the access that we have in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter two, I believe verse um, 18 says, for through him, we both have access by one spirit unto the father. Rendered in a new living translation says, now all of us can come to the father through the same Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit, because of what Christ has done for us. So it means that we have access by one spirit unto the Father. We have access to our Heavenly Father. Because as Gentiles, we were distant, and now Christ came and proclaimed peace to us who were far, and he took away the differences between Jews and Gentiles and brought us together as one people, all having access to our Heavenly Father by the Spirit of God. And it goes ahead and talks about us being God's habitation. It says, now by the fact that you have access to your heavenly father, you are therefore, um, now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So you're no longer a stranger or a foreigner, but a citizen with the other saints and part of God's household. So you have a home, you belong somewhere, and you are also built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And we say it when we talk about the foundation that has been laid by the apostles and prophets, it is all that has been written in the Old Testament and the New Testament pointing towards Jesus Christ, being the center of discussion. Jesus is the message. So we are built upon the reality of Christ being the message. That is the foundation that the apostles and the prophets have set. 
about our focus and our central uh, our central point of view being Jesus Christ. And goes ahead, the Bible goes ahead and says, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth up unto a holy temple in the Lord. So all of us being together, we are one glorious temple of God where God dwells. God resides in his church. And the Bible says, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the spirit. That means God is dwelling inside of you by the spirit. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of his dwelling where God lives by his spirit. What a beautiful privilege it is for you to be God's dwelling place. Hallelujah. God dwells inside of you. God resides inside of you. Praise the Lord. So we are not looking for his presence. We don't go into his presence because God dwells inside of us. In the Amplified, it says in him and in fellowship with one another, you yourselves are also being built up into this structure with the rest to form a fixed abode dwelling place of God in by through the spirit. We can see clearly that um, we can see clearly that we are God's dwelling place, that God dwells inside of you. And that is the level of access that you have as a child of God. And then further moving into Ephesians chapter three, we also looked at the word access that has been used there. And um, it is very uh, um, uh, simple and clear uh, in verse 12 of Ephesians chapter three, it says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him, or rather because of Christ and now our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. And you see, the simpler versions might try to simplify it, but it is good for us to clarify that we don't come into God's presence, but rather we are standing in his presence. We are dwelling in his presence because he also dwells in us. We, he abides in us. We abide in him. We are united with him. And so we can now boldly and confidently dwell in his presence. And this is a statement that the Apostle Paul made after talking about the great mission, the great assignment that he has, the great assignment that he has, and that great assignment he built it out at length when he said in verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 3, to me though I am the very least of all saints, God's consecrated people, this grace or favor privilege was granted and graciously entrusted to me to proclaim to the Gentiles, the unending, boundless, fathomless, incalculable, and exhaustless reaches of Christ, wealth which no human being could have searched out. So his mission was to make us see the unendless treasures that are available to us in Jesus Christ, the greatest, the great treasures, the unsearchable reaches that are available for you, the believer in Jesus Christ. And that was Paul's assignment. And now he says, that we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. So we have boldness and access. We have access to all the unsearchable riches, to all that Jesus Christ has made available for us. We have access. We have entry. We have admission. We have the privilege of partaking of all that Jesus Christ has made available for us, the believers. Praise be to Jesus. That is your reality, my brother. That is your reality, my sister. 
And so with that kind of knowledge that you have access to all that God has made available for you, it is such a beautiful privilege to know that your heavenly father is always ready and available for you. That you can always share with God the deep thoughts of your heart. That you can always fellowship with him. That you don't need a pastor, a prophet, an evangelist, an apostle to talk to God on your behalf. You don't need an intermediary, but you have access to God yourself because he dwells inside of you. The purpose for which ministers of the gospel were brought in place was to help you see all that has been made available for you, to make you strong, to help you be built up in Christ Jesus so that you can be able to access all the beautiful privileges that you have in Christ Jesus. Please recall, my fellow brothers and sisters, that Paul said his assignment, and Paul was an apostle, was to make people see the endless, boundless riches that are available for us in Jesus Christ. That was Paul's assignment. And so Paul, being an apostle, also goes further and talks about the assignment of all the different ministry offices that Christ gave us gifts to men. And he talks about the pastor, the evangelist, the teacher, the prophet, the apostle, that their work was to help us grow in Christ, access all that Jesus has made available to us. That was the purpose of this ministries, was to help you see, hey, listen, my brother, listen, my sister, this is all that God has made available for you. Take advantage of it. Enjoy it. And that is the purpose of ministers. And so he clarifies it in such a beautiful way in Ephesians chapter 4 concerning the assignment that has been given. And if you understand, the epistle was one letter. And so after Paul has spoken about all the assignment he has to make us see all that Jesus Christ has made available for us, in in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul goes ahead to clarify, and he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you should walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Um, Let me just share that on your screen for those who may not be able to open their Bibles. After Paul has spoken about the unsearchable riches of Christ and the assignment that he has to make people see the unsearchable riches of Christ, what does Paul say? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, from verse 1, if I may read to you in a simpler rendering of the New Living Translation, it says, Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord. Um, and I, again, let me clarify. You see, the King James says, The prisoner of the Lord, not a prisoner for serving the Lord. Not that I am in jail for serving the Lord, but rather he says, the, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. And when Paul said the prisoner of the Lord, he meant the entire property that he was owned. He was the entire possession of God. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you called, or rather, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you've been called by God. So he's urging the church to live a life worthy of the calling that you have in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It simply means that live according to the calling that you have received in Christ. Don't live any less. Don't live a defeated life. 
when Jesus has called you to be victorious. Don't live a beggarly life when Jesus has called you to be a blessing to nations. Don't live a life of weakness and vulnerability when the Lord has called you to a life of strength, a life of security in him. Don't live a life of shame when the Lord has already covered your shame. The Bible says that you've been clothed with Christ Jesus. Paul is urging the church to live a life worthy of the calling that they are received. Don't live any less than the fact that you've been called to be a king and a priest. Don't live any less than the fact that you've been called to be a son of God. He says that there's so much that has been made available for you. And he says, live it with all lowliness and meekness. Live it like Jesus, because it is Jesus who said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, because I am lowly and meek of heart. So Jesus said, I am lowly and meek. And then you're told to also live a life in all lowliness and meekness, which means in humility and long-suffering. He says, leave it, leave, leave your vocation, leave a life worthy of your calling with all lowliness, meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Forbearing one another in love. He says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. And here the scripture truly is correcting us. The scripture here is correcting us where we have not been patient and when we have not made an allowance for others' faults. Where we have been saying, you know, me, if someone wrongs me or someone is just doing certain things, I just cut them off from my life. I am tired and I am cannot cannot keep up with that. Cannot take that. Sometimes we say I cannot take that nonsense. But the Bible says we are to be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body, one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. However, now Paul begins to drift in his, um, into a different direction. He says, however, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That is why the scripture says, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and he gave gifts to people. Notice that it says he ascended. That this clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. All right? So Christ gave these gifts. These are the gifts to the church. These are the gifts to the church, which means if something is a gift, it ought to be a joy. It ought to be, it ought to bring so much pleasure. It ought to bring so much delight. These are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Their responsibility, now listen to their responsibility, is to equip God's people 
to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. The responsibility of this particular gifts, which are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. And this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son, that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way, more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Interesting, interesting. Let me read in the message. It says, from verse 11, um, um, he handed out gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor, teachers to train Christ's followers in skilled servant work, working within Christ's body, the church, until we, we are all moving rhythmically and easily with each other, efficient and graceful in response to God's Son, fully mature adults, fully developed within and without, fully alive like Christ. No prolonged infancies among us, please. We'll not tolerate babes in the woods, small children who are easy prey for predators. God wants us to grow up, to know the whole truth, and tell it in love, like Christ in everything. We take our lead from Christ, who is the source of everything we do. So Paul is clarifying here that the reason why all these particular gifts were given was for the benefit of the body of Christ, to grow the believers into a place of maturity, to grow the believers to a place of understanding their identity in Jesus, that is grow to the full measure and the stature of Jesus Christ, to the same measure of Christ, to grow in Christ, to become Christ-like. That was the purpose of all these ministries that were given so that we can become Christ-like, so that we can become like Jesus. We can grow in the knowledge of Jesus. We can emulate after the life of Jesus. We can emulate after the character and the conduct of Jesus Christ so that we can be identified with Jesus. That is why these ministries were given. These ministries were not given so that we can become dramatic in the church. All the things that you have seen people doing, the rolling on the floor, the jumping up on chairs, the, all the theatrics that you have seen happening in the body of Christ was not the purpose for which these ministries were given. These ministries were not given so that you can have pictures of your pastor in your bedroom or your prophet. They were not given so that you can be glorifying your pastor or your prophet everywhere you go. They were not given 
so that we can have all these kind of theatrics that you can identify more with your denomination more than you identify with Jesus. That was not the reason why these ministries were given. They were not given so that you can squander all your wealth and property in church in the name of trying to gain a breakthrough. These ministries were not given for all the wrong reasons. And I like what the New Living Translation says. It says, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. That is the responsibility. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son. So what is the destination of this work of equipping God's people? Why are they equipping God's people? What is the destination? The destination is that you will come into such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son so that we can have a common knowledge of God's son, Jesus Christ, that we can have a common, a united understanding of Jesus Christ. And then we can also be mature, measuring up to the full, complete standard of Christ. So we can be mature and we can be like Jesus Christ. So we can come to maturity as believers. Then we will no longer be like immature children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. Okay. Okay, good. So what is the product of maturity? When we become mature, like Christ, when we are built up by these ministries to become mature like Christ, when we are continually taught about the unsearchable riches of Christ, when we are educated about all that Jesus Christ has made available for us, we become mature. And then when we become mature as believers, what is the outcome? The outcome is we will no longer be tossed. We will no longer be mature. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. Okay. So what is the sign of immaturity in believers? Tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. Someone comes and says something. You've been tossed to and fro. Someone says something that is not even true. You are swayed away by it. It says... We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Bible says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slate of men and kerning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So the purpose is so that you will no longer be deceived easily. Today, you're on fire for God. Tomorrow, you're in a crisis. You're committed. You're learning God's word. Then a prophet comes. And maybe because, or, 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 or a pastor comes, and maybe because he has big cars, now you believe that is the gospel. And now you're swayed away. The purpose of these offices and these ministries was to ground you, my brother, to ground you, my sister. Amen. So that is the purpose for which these ministries were given. And Paul articulated it when he said to help to make the church see the unsearchable riches of Christ. That is our purpose. That is our assignment. If I cannot point you towards all that Christ has made available for you, I have no business in your life. You have no business listening to me. You have no business listening to me. 
That is our responsibility as ministers of the gospel. Secondly, you have no business going about worshiping ministers of God or behaving in a way that is inappropriate towards servants of God. You have no business doing that. You have no business doing that. Yes, we honor those who have ministered the word of God in our lives. We honor them. But we do it so appropriately. And we do it in knowledge. We honor ministers of the gospel. We honor them. We love them. We cherish them. We bless them. We even communicate to them good things, be it in words, in speech, be it materially. But we do it with knowledge and with wisdom. We do it appropriately. We don't do it to gain favor or to gain a blessing because, as I showed you, you have already been blessed tremendously in Christ. You've already been blessed tremendously in Christ. And for us as ministers of the gospel, why do we do it? We do it because we are convicted in our hearts. We are persuaded. We don't do it to gain favor. We don't do it to gain attention. Neither do we do it for money. We don't do it for those reasons. We don't do it for the wrong reasons. We have to do it for the right reasons, which is to help people see all that Jesus Christ has made available for them. And that is the purpose of this ministries, to help you see the unsearchable reaches of Christ. Therefore, I will urge you to judge whenever you are listening to a minister of the gospel or wherever you're going, is the person pointing you towards Jesus? Is the person pointing you towards the truth of Christ? Is the person pointing you towards the reality of your identity in Jesus Christ? It is important that you do that. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, that being said, you remember our core focus is learning the unsearchable reaches of Jesus Christ. And, oh, we have so much to learn and it is beautiful. And I am excited to learn with you. Now, after looking at those scriptures that were foundational, talking about the access that we have in Christ, I would like to tell you something. The fundamental conclusion, whenever we study the scriptures thoroughly, is simply that salvation is God's work alone. Salvation is by the doing of God. It's God's work alone. It is God's responsibility to save you. And that salvation is only received by believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Though these events, that is his death, burial, and resurrection, though they happened once, the effects 
of his death, burial, and resurrection are eternal in nature. They are eternal in nature. They are eternal in nature. We read in Hebrews where it says, for by one sacrifice he has perfected forever those that are sanctified by one sacrifice. So, though the events of his death, burial, and resurrection happened once, the effects are eternal in nature. Therefore, it becomes imperative for the believer to have precise knowledge about the vital truth of God's word that assures him of his salvation. It is important for the believer to have precise knowledge about the vital truth of God's word that assures him of salvation. It is important that you have precise knowledge about this important truth of God's word that assures you of your salvation. Amen. Ephesians 4.13 says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, that is a mature man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to the same measure, of the stature of the fullness of Christ to the like manner of Jesus Christ that we be no more children that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunningness or slate of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive so there are those that lie in wait to deceive, but we are urged through the word of God that we shall no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slate of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait, they lie in wait to deceive. No more being deceived. No more being lied to. So Paul the Apostle refers to believers that are tossed to and fro as Children, listen, children, that we henceforth be no more children. So Paul the Apostle is referring to the believers that are tossed to and fro as children. And that word is translated in the Greek as nepios, which implies immature. And it is a reference to their spiritual status. When your spiritual status reads immature, when your spiritual status reads immature, it means that you are carried about by every wind of doctrine. You are carried about by every wind of doctrine. Carried about by every wind of doctrine. And let me tell you, this spiritual status happens to doctors, to lawyers, to politicians, to teachers, to people of any profession. It, it does not respect education. It does not respect education. It only regards knowledge of the Son of God. Knowledge of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we have seen people who are well-educated deceived. We have seen people deceived. Because the sign of spiritual immaturity is 
that you are tossed to and fro, you are carried about by any wind of doctrine. There are people who come and they say, now we have believed the gospel. We are, we are working with them. We are teaching them the word of God. We are building them up in the knowledge of Christ. Then one day they wake up, they go to a certain church, and then they hear a prophet telling them, you know, the reason why things are not going right in your life is because you need to give a painful sacrifice. <laughs> because of something that your ancestors did, and all of a sudden they believe it. They go and give 50,000, 100,000, 200,000. It is simply an indication of spiritual immaturity. And that is not God's desire for us. Amen. It is not God's desire for you. So, Paul the Apostle uh, stated that the, the people who are carried about by any wind of doctrine are immature. The Apostle Peter backs the same sentiments in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter comes and says, consider or, and, and account that or take note that or regard that or take to record that, that is, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Even as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also other scriptures, unto their own destruction. But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. I'll read that again. Second Peter 3.15 says, Consider that this long-suffering, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things had to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also other, the other scriptures, and to their own destruction. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So the believer must be aware of his rights and privileges in Christ. He is to grow in the knowledge of all Christ has done, and the knowledge can only be from the scriptures. Let me repeat that. The believer must be aware of his rights and privileges in Christ. The believer must be aware of his rights and privileges in Christ. The believer must be aware of his rights and privileges in Christ. I'll repeat again. The believer must be aware of his rights and privileges in Christ. The believer is to grow in the knowledge of all Christ has done. The believer is to grow in the knowledge of all Christ has done. The believer is to grow in the knowledge of all that Christ has done. And that knowledge can only be from the scriptures. That knowledge 
can only be from the scriptures. That is why we have people who say, you know, I am born again. But then the slightest of crisis in their life begins to reveal conduct that is rather strange in their lives. When they're going through a stressful situation, you will see them giving up, saying, you know what, God does not exist. Or you'll see believers throwing their hands. You will see believers, you know, even some, you will see them, you know, going to drink, saying, you know, I, I had to just take a few bottles because this stress is too much. Or you will see somebody saying, you know what, I had to do one to three things. And you wonder why. Why? Because they mature. They mature. They have not been secured in Christ. And so we are urged through the scripture that the believer must be aware of his rights and privileges in Christ. And that the believer is to grow in the knowledge of all Jesus Christ has done for them. And that knowledge can only be found from the scriptures. The believer must be fully informed. Listen to this. Okay? The believer must be fully in, must be fully informed of the overwhelming evidences from scriptures which assure him of his salvation in Christ. I'll repeat that again. The believer must be fully informed of the overwhelming evidences from scriptures which assure him or her of their salvation in Christ. The believer must be fully informed of the overwhelming evidences from scriptures, the overwhelming evidences from scripture, which assure them of their salvation in Christ. You must be informed of the evidence that is in the scripture concerning your salvation, the evidence that assures you of your salvation. Now, why am I saying this? I'm saying this because you will have a person who is born again. They undergo a certain series of misfortunes. Let's say you go and um, you lose your contract, your job, you lose your job. Then your house is closed. And there you conclude that God is not for you. There you conclude that God has, has forgotten about you. Or a believer may go through loss in some type of way. And automatically they believe that God is not for them. Or a believer might commit an offense. And by committing that offense, you believe that, you know what? God has abandoned me and God is no longer for me. It is a sign of immaturity. It is a sign that we are not persuaded or convinced overwhelmingly about the evidence of God's salvation in our lives. So it's like you are, the graph of your spirituality is on a high and, and on a low. You're high when, when things, are, things, are, things are okay, then you are on a high that God is faithful and God loves you. When things are not okay, God has abandoned you. So 
it makes us inconsistent in our walk. The scripture here uh, clearly shows that overwhelmingly there is evidence about what Jesus Christ has done for you. And therefore, you must be fully informed of the overwhelming evidence from scripture that assures you of your salvation in Christ. Therefore, it becomes imperative to study the words of, uh, and the terms which are descriptive of the believer from the scriptures and specifically in the epistles. I have said this time and time again. I have said this when we began this series. As we study the word of God, I have said this categorically and you can prove me as you look at the scriptures. When you study your Bible, technically speaking, Genesis is not necessarily Old Testament because the law had not been given. The law did not exist. And technically speaking, some portions of the books that are argued not to be part of or to have existed before Moses, such as the book of Job, can also be argued that it's not necessarily Old Testament. But we see the Old Testament from the time Moses uh, and brings this covenant to the children of Israel. And we see the experience of it through the Psalms, through the prophets' writings. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is not necessarily Old uh, New Testament because Christ had not yet died. The New Testament in his blood had not yet been initiated. Partly, you can say some portions of Christ after his resurrection recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is New Testament. But overwhelmingly, if you look at the scriptures, my brothers, my sisters, when Jesus was with his apostles and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, when he was now announcing it to them, what was in the new covenant? No. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, now the new covenant, we enter in Christ. So, again, you have to understand that. That's why Jesus had a lot of issues with people who were under the law. Because they would assume that he was breaking the law. Then now you come to the book of Acts, which is a record of all the apostles preached and their work. Now when you come to the epistles is when you begin to find specific descriptions about the believer in Jesus Christ. Specific descriptions about what Jesus Christ has made the believer. You will find them in volumes beginning from Romans. And so it is important to study the words and the terms which are descriptive of the believer from the scriptures, particularly the epistles, particularly in the epistles. These are words that explain the identification of the believer in Christ, which is predicated on the sacrifice of Jesus for sin. I'll repeat that again. It, it, it is important to study the words or the terms which are descriptive of the believer from the scriptures, 
particularly in the epistles. These are words that explain the identification of the believer in Christ, which is predicated on the sacrifice of Jesus for sin. You remember when I was taking you guys through Ephesians, and I took you through the identity of the believer in the epistles. When I was taking you through Ephesians, I showed you how endlessly the term in Christ is used. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It appears several, several times. It appears several times because now your identity is described as being in Christ. Amen. So it is important for us to study in the epistles and to see what is now the description of the believer. Okay? This is what we have now received. These are the unsearchable riches that have now become part and parcel of our identity. These are the things that have become part of our identity in Christ. And so we will look at some of these things as time permits us so we can learn and the rest we can conclude next week. To start with, according to the scriptures, the believer, and you can write this down, the believer is justified and righteous. The believer is justified and righteous. Now, please note, I made a statement before that and I said, the believer must be aware of their rights and privileges in Christ. That the believer must be aware of his or her rights and privileges in Christ. Secondly, the believer is to grow in the knowledge of all that Christ has done for them. And thirdly, that the believer should know that this knowledge can only be found from the scriptures. So, what am I saying? I'm saying that you must know your, uh, you, you must be aware of your rights and privileges in Christ. That you must grow in the knowledge of all that Jesus Christ has done for you. And that you must also understand that that knowledge can only be found from the scriptures. So, you must fully be informed of the, knowledge, of the overwhelming evidence from scripture that assures you of your salvation. So now we are looking at the things that are clear and specific about the believer. One is that the believer is justified and righteous. The believer is justified and righteous. Romans chapter 3 verse 24 says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You remember last week and last week, but when we actually we went through the whole the whole book of Romans chapter chapter, chapter four, partly three, as we were building towards the scripture in Romans chapter five, verse two that talks about us having access. Romans 3.24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
So you can say, I am justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I am justified freely. I am justified freely. What is to be justified? The word justified was translated from the Greek word dikaio. And it, impl- it, it implies to pronounce righteous. To be justified means to pronounce righteous, to be pronounced as righteous. You are pronounced as righteous. By who? By God. You are pronounced to be righteous. And it has been used around 40 times in the New Testament text of the Bible. So historically, this word justified, this word dikayo, which implies to pronounce righteous. Historically, it was used in Greek culture by judges. It was used in Greek culture by judges where the judge pronounces a man not guilty. Historically, it was used in Greek culture by judges where the judge pronounces a man not guilty. It is a judge's declaration to see as right, to show as right, to treat as right, to pronounce as right. Thus, the believer is justified. So what is your status? You have been justified. You have been pronounced righteous. You have been declared to be right. You have been shown to be right. You are treated as right and you have been pronounced to be right. And Paul explained the justification of Abraham, which I, we, we studied, we read through it. Romans chapter 4 verse 1 says, What shall we say then? That Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, or he has reason to glory, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was recorded or credited to him for righteousness. Now to him that works or that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. That is if you have worked whatever you receive as a payment is not a gift but it is money that you are owed. But to him that does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly His faith is counted for righteousness. So, I have clearly stated to you, according to Romans 3.24, that you have been justified. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. But how does the justification happen? I have told you the meaning of justification. I have said It is translated from the Greek word dikaio, which implies to pronounce righteous. It was used about 40 times in the New Testament text of the Bible. Historically, it was used in Greek culture by judges where the judge pronounces a man not guilty. It is a judge's declaration to see as right, to show as right, to treat as right, to pronounce as right. Thus, the believer is justified. 
But then the question begs, how did it happen? So we are given an example of somebody who was declared righteous. How did it happen? The Bible says in Romans chapter 4 verse 1, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? What shall we say? What did Abraham find? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has reason to glory, but not before God. For what does the scripture uh, say? That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that does not work, that but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So my question for you is this. Did you work or did you believe the gospel? Did you work or did you believe the gospel? Is there anyone who would like to respond? Did you work or did you believe? Jackie says she believed the gospel, absolutely. So if you believed, like Abraham, Romans chapter 4 says, verse 4, uh, verse 3 rather, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So, if Abraham believed God and he was counted to be righteous, if you believed the gospel, then you have been declared righteous. That's why Romans 3.24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You have been justified freely. Freely. You did not pay. You see, when someone is accused in a court of law, and they're found to be guilty, they have to pay for them to be released. But the Bible says you've been freely justified, freely. You have not paid anything. You have not served any sentence. You have been freely paid, freely justified. In other words, let me say it this way. You have not paid for your sins. You have not paid for your sins. Now, the Bible uh, is very clear on that one, Romans 3.24, that we have been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Then now it says, then now we, have, we learn that Abraham was justified by God, pronounced as right. Abraham was justified by God. He was pronounced as right. It was not based on works, rather he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So he believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He believed God, and it was reckoned or credited, or um, it was credited to him for righteousness. On account of faith in Christ, he was justified and called righteous. On account of faith in Christ, he was justified and called righteous. The same is to everyone that believes in Jesus. To everyone that believes in Jesus is the same reality, is the same measure of blessing. Romans 3.25 says, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. 
to declare, I say, that this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. The believer is justified by his faith in Christ and so declared righteous. This justification is imputed by God. Romans 3.25. Now, let me uh, read it out in a simplified version. Simplified version. Romans 3, verse 25. Um, if you would pay attention to your screen. It says, um, For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Let me repeat that again. Let me start from verse 23 of Romans. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Hallelujah. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead, including them, in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Hallelujah. In the message it says, but in our time, something new has been added. What Moses and all the prophets witnessed to all those Witness to all those years has happened. That God setting things right, that we read about, uh, that God setting things right, that we read about, has become Jesus setting things right for us. And not only for us, but everyone who believes in him. For there is no difference between us and them in this. Since we are, we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, both us and them, and prove that we were utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess 
we are in and restored us where he always wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ. God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to clear that world of sin. Having faith in him sets us in the clear. God decided on this cause of action in full view of the public to set the world in the clear with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus. Finally, taking care of the sins he had so patiently endured. This is not only clear, but it is now, this is current, but it's now, this is current history. God set things right. He also makes it possible for us to live in his rightness. So God has made you righteous, my brother. God has made you righteous, my sister. He has done it. He himself has done it. The believer is justified by his faith in Christ and so declared righteous. The justification is imputed by God. Romans 4.24 says, But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. That is Romans 4.24, beautiful passage, Romans 4.24. It says, um, again, if I can share it on your screen, it says, for, um, and when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to make life, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. So we have clearly seen that the same way Abraham was declared righteous, so we have been declared righteous by believing in God. And that word imputed, Romans 4.24, that says, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. The word imputed was from the Greek word logizomai, which implies to take account of or to reckon with. Thus the believer is justified because of his faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Also, the believer not only is pronounced declared righteous, he has been made the righteousness of God in Christ. The, also, the believer is not only just pronounced declared righteous, but we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he hath made him to be seen for us, who knew not sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. The word righteousness is also from the Greek word dikaiosune, which, impl which, implies, which implies that which is proper, moral, acceptable, or just. God has made us acceptable and just to him. We are acceptable. We are, right, we are God's righteousness. It is our portion. Romans 3.22 says, 
even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe, for there is no difference. And Philippians 3.9 also says, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness, which is of God by faith. So it is the righteousness, which is of God, the righteousness, which is by faith. Faith here implies to believe in what God has done in Christ and to accept what he has given us. So the believer's righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us in righteousness. Oh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, 30 says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The righteousness is a gift received in Christ. The righteousness is a gift received in Christ. Romans 5.17 says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, they shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Can you hear me? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, yes, you can. Yeah, 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 continue. All right. So, beloved, the scripture here says in Romans 5.17, for if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Hence, the believer is justified or rather regarded as righteous by faith in the gospel alone. The believer is justified and regarded as righteous by faith in the gospel alone. So what does the word righteous mean? If you can recall what I said, it says to pronounce righteous. It is from the Greek word dikaio. And it was used in Greek culture by judges where the judge pronounces a man not guilty. It is a judge's declaration that the, you are seen to be right, to be shown as right, to be treated as right, to be pronounced as right. So the believer is justified. So by you saying that you are justified and you are righteous, according to Romans 3.24 that says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, you have been declared righteous by grace. Being justified freely by his grace, because of God's grace, because of his grace, because of undeserved privilege, because of this success that you have 
to the grace wherein you stand, according to Romans 5.2. Because of the fact that you have been admitted to a place of undeserved privilege, because of the fact that you are standing in a place of undeserved privilege, you are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So by grace, you've been made righteous through faith. By grace, you've been made righteous. So it means that God has declared you to be without any fault, to be without any mistake, to be without any offense. How did it happen? By you believing the gospel. When you believe that Jesus Christ was was delivered for your offenses, when you believe that Jesus Christ died for you and you believe that he is risen, right there you were declared righteous. And we are given an example through Abraham's life that he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So you are righteous because you have believed God who justifies the ungodly because he has the power to do so. He has the power to do so. So you have believed in God and he has declared you to be justified. So just like Abraham was pronounced, or just as Abraham was justified by God, he was pronounced as right. And we know that Abraham's declaration or pronunciation as being right was not based on works. Rather, he believed God and it was counted or reckoned to him for righteousness. On account of faith in Christ, Abraham was considered to be righteous. The same applies to you, my brother. The same applies to you, my sister. Just as I have read for you, according to Romans 3.25, where it says, according to Romans 3.25, that... For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrifices life. Okay. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. That is what you heard when the gospel was preached to you. That Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who had sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just. And he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So God has made you right when you believed in Jesus. So you have been justified by faith in Christ. You have been declared righteous. This justification is credited, is accounted on your behalf. It is given to you by God. It is God who imputes it in you. It is God who imputes it upon you. Because Romans 4, 24 says, um, it says, "For our um, and when God counted him as righteous, it was ju- it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit; it was recorded 
for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins and he was raised to life to make us right with God. So why did Jesus die? Jesus died for your sins. Why was he raised from the dead? He was raised from the dead to make you right with God. So just as Christ was raised in the newness of life, so we also consider ourselves to be dead to sin. And now we are risen. We are alive in the newness of life. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are new and all things are of God who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So we know that God has done this for us. And not only that, but now God is calling us his righteousness. He's calling us his righteousness. We have the same nature as Jesus Christ, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. In the King James, it's rendered, For he has made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. So we have been called the righteousness of God. And I told you that word righteousness is from the Greek word dikaiosun, which implies proper, moral, acceptable, and just. So we are proper, moral, acceptable, and just before God. We are just before God. We are acceptable before God. We are proper before God. And the same word is used in Romans 3.22, which talks about even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, and to all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. That is talking about the gospel. When Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, it is the righteousness of God is revealed in that gospel. So we are the righteousness of God. And Philippians 3.9 says, we have been found in him not having, uh, Paul, as Paul rendered, and to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So it is the righteousness which is of God, the righteousness which is by faith. Faith here implies to believe what God has done in Christ, to accept what he has given us, to believe what God has done in Christ, and to accept what he has given us, which is the unsearchable riches of Christ. Do you believe what God has done in Christ? Have you accepted what God has given you in Christ Jesus? Can you now say that you have received the righteousness of God, which is by Christ? Because it is God that has declared you to be righteous. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We are justified freely by his grace. I want to assure you today, my brother, my sister, God is not angry at you. God sees you as proper, moral, acceptable before him. God sees you in that light. And people say, hey, you should not tell people that. If you tell them that, it means that they will go ahead and sin and keep on sinning. Absolutely not. 
This is what empowers somebody to live for God. Because Paul urged us, according to Ephesians chapter 4, to lead a life worthy of our calling. To lead a life worthy of our vocation. Live according to what you have been called. You are righteous. Live like that because that is your identity. That is your identity. God has called you that. And he has empowered you to live out that life. It is not by telling you how bad you are that will make you transform. It is by telling you how good God has made you that will make you live for him and live to the standard to which you have been called. The challenge for the believer is to lead a life worthy of his calling. And God is at work in you both to will and to act out his good pleasure. He has empowered you to live out the righteous life. He has empowered you to live the life of righteousness. I recall one example somebody gave and said, if a woman was to wear a man's clothes, she will never become a man. Because the clothes do not change her identity. Because a woman is a woman. So why does a woman wear women's clothes? Why does a woman do her hair in a certain way? Why does a woman behave like a woman? Because she's a woman first. So she behaves according to her identity. The same way as men, we can never be women even if we were to wear your clothes. We are men first. We have been made first men. Therefore, we live as men. Therefore, we learn to be as men. Therefore, we learn our responsibilities. We learn to become great men. The same way for you, my brother, the same way for you, my sister. You don't become righteous by trying to do the right thing. You become righteous because you have been declared to be righteous. Then now by that realization that, hey, listen, I am the righteousness of God. You are now empowered to live a life of righteousness because you have been made righteous first. You have become righteous first. Therefore, live as a righteous person in the name of Jesus. That is why when you make a mistake or you do something that is wrong, you don't start proclaiming out of ignorance that, Lord, I am a sinner. And you go and pray the sinner's prayer. No. What you do is you still proclaim your identity. Even when you feel like you don't feel like it, you say, Father, I thank you that I am the righteousness of God. Thank you that I've been declared righteous. Thank you, Father, that your word says, being justified freely by your grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, I am the righteousness of God. Thank you, Lord, that I am the righteousness of God. I am the righteousness of God, that you were delivered for my offenses and that you have been raised from my justification. I am justified by faith. I am the righteousness of God. Because that is your identity. God has made you that. Now go in the scripture. Continually be built up. Continually be strengthened. As you pray, as you study, then live out the life of what God has made you. 
And that is the difference between grace and law. Because the law demands for you to deliver or to, for you to supply that you can become. But grace supplies for you first, then tells you become. Out of God's gracious character, he makes you fast. He supplies you fast and tells you, live out the life as the righteousness of God. Live out your life as a son of God. Live out your life as a king and priest because I have made you so. In the New Testament, God has supplied fast. And the big question is, can you receive it? And live out what God has made you. Can you see what he has made you? Can you embrace what he has made you? So that you can live out your identity. As Paul urged the church in Ephesians chapter 2, chapter 4. To live out your life according to the calling that you have received. To live out your life according to the calling that you've received. Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul urges us. I therefore, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you. That you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. With all lowliness and meekness. With long suffering forbearing one another in love. Therefore I a prisoner for, the, for, for serving the Lord beg you. To lead a life worthy of your calling. For you, for you have been called. How do I live a life worthy of my calling? How? I live it by accepting what God has made me. You have been called righteous. Then live according to the calling that God has called you. You have been called justified then live as a justified person. You've been called righteous, then live as a righteous person. You've been called justified, live as a justified person. And it is not by your own effort. It is simply by the grace of God. So he's saying, receive it, accept it, proclaim it. Wake up in the morning, say, I am the righteousness of God. Go to bed saying, I'm the righteousness of God. Live every day saying, I am justified by faith. I'm the righteousness of God. Continue proclaiming and say, I am the righteousness of God. I have been declared free. I have been declared righteous, holy, justified, acceptable, proper, moral. I have been called right. I am right with God. I am at peace with God. The product of justification is peace with God. According to Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, being justified freely, we have peace with God. Ha! Live in peace every day. Walk in the peace of God. Enjoy his peace because God is looking at you as clean, proper, moral. You have nothing that he can look upon with disgust or with a desire to punish. But you have been clothed with Christ. You are the righteousness of God. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free 
from the law of sin and death. What is the law of the spirit? Life in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Of life in Christ Jesus. Of the fulfilling life in Christ Jesus. The fact that you're in Christ Jesus, you have been set free from the law of sin and death. Hallelujah. You are free to live in joy and in peace because God has called you righteous. So even when you don't feel like it, speak it. Be persuaded of it. Take time and speak in tongues. Rabakusi alakande bakash kimanda raba I am the justified I am I am justified by faith freely justified I am the righteousness of God I am right stand I am in right standing with God I am the righteousness of God there is no accusation there is no guilt but I have peace with God it is my identity take hold of it Proclaim every good thing that is in you in Christ Jesus and experience the glorious liberty that has been made available for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 I want us to take some time and pray right now. Pray with that understanding. Proclaim that reality concerning your identity in Christ. Do it. Put on your microphone. Let us pray. If you have any prayer requests, share it in the comment section. Let us take a few minutes right now and declare that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 Come on, let us pray. Let us pray right now. I want to hear you guys pray. Let us pray right now in, in the name of Jesus. Let us pray. Let us pray. I want to hear you pray. Open your microphones and pray right now.